This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Brian Chesky grew up in upstate New York and began a room rental business in San Francisco, which started with three air mattresses. Fast forward, Brian is now one of the co-founders and CEO of the online marketplace for homestays and vacation rentals, Airbnb. On this episode of the Carlos Watson Show podcast, Brian Chesky reflects on how the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted Airbnb, how the company has flourished, and lessons he's learned from investor Warren Buffett and former President Barack Obama. Hey, Brian. Hey, how you doing, man? Good to see you. Good, good. Yeah, are you getting any uh, sleep or are you, uh, you busier than ever? Um, lately, you know, it's been 18 months of not too much sleep, but more recently, you know, um, I'm winding down a little bit. Are, are you, are you, act, are you actually, are you someone who can sleep? Like, are you a good sleeper? Or are you not a good sleeper? No, I, I, um, I, uh, struggle to shut my mind off. Um, I'm very high energy person and the last 18 months has been a giant adrenaline rush. So, um, but I am slowing down a little bit, you know, like now it's summer and, you know, we're kind of a little bit post-crisis. So I'm trying to like, you know, restart the rest of my life, you know, because this has been basically 18 months of like kind of crisis management slash, you know, 24-7. Yeah, you know, it's, it, I, I mean, you see it in a real macro way, but I think for lots of individual people, I still feel like so much has happened. Like it's been a pressure packed 12, 16 months from the election and the craziness to pandemic to other stuff that I don't even think people really realize how much they've had on their back. Do you know what I mean? I think it's one of those moments when they finally do sleep. If they ever can sleep in peace, they will sleep longer than they expected. I think I'm 39 going on 49 after 2020. <laughs> right, right. Wait, now where are the grays though? Because I'm not seeing grays yet. It looks I, like I, you're I, clean. I, I do the like short on the sides because that's where all the grays come in. So Okay, okay. Yeah. Oh, you know, W would call that strategery. So yeah, I like yeah, that. yeah, that's, exactly. Uh, Very strategic haircut. So yeah, yeah. Now, are you a runner or do you get any, is exercise good for you at all? Like, do you get anything? Yeah, well, actually, it's just really funny. So I used to exercise a lot. Um, I was into like um, more like weightlifting, bodybuilding, but I also did like cardio and stuff. And I played like ice hockey, like my, my, my sport growing up was ice hockey. And, um, you know, I had to like, I was like a little skinny to play ice hockey. So I had to start weight training and that became my sport. But, um, you know, when I was, when the pandemic started, I like didn't leave my house. And basically it was like 16 hours a day, seven days a week and no exercise, no communication with the outside world other than crisis. But like, to be clear, I didn't think it was going on for 18 months. I thought it would be like three <laughs> right, weeks, right? right? It was like March 15th, right. the world's yeah, sheltering right. in place. I'm like, this will go on for like three or four weeks. And three weeks became three months, became a year, became an IPO, became 18 months. So about a month and a half ago, um, my gym reopened. And I said, you know, like, the first thing I'm going to do is start exercising again. This is completely unsustainable. So now I'm back in the gym. And then the second thing I said is, 
I'm going to like, I'm going to have friends again. Like, you know, like I've, been in a, I've been in a hole. Like I, like every conversation I had was a work conversation. I, I felt like I was talking to people all day on zoom. They were just, they were, you know, friends with coworkers. I'm like, I need to have friends. And I said, I need to, you know, also have a hobby. And so I started, I'm an, I was an artist and designer before me. So I started drawing again. So, you know, a lot of my life was on hold for 18 months. And I think like a lot of people, this is like, you know, a once in a century moment where the rest of your life begins. And there's nothing quite like a pandemic when you're sheltering in place where you, I think it's like, it's like we all spend 18 months, like everyone had different experiences, but like reevaluating our lives, right? When you like have to be at home and there's a huge societal change, you like value your life and then now you reemerge. And so I think this is kind of one of the things I'm up to. Did you, did you come out? Cause I don't know that I've done a good enough job, Brian, if I'm honest, I should have done a better job of reevaluating my life. And even as I hear you talk about it, I realize that I only at least explicitly done this much. And so there's probably more I could do. Did you come to any kind of bright new forks in the road or any? Oh yeah. Yeah. Personal and professional, um, starting with professional, I mean, and just, just like when the crisis hit, I'll just give you a, like a short version of what happened professionally. You know, probably like a lot of people, I thought my life was going all right in 2020. I came back from the holidays and I thought, this is my life. I got a plan. I'm going. And all of a sudden, I felt like I was the captain of this ship and a torpedo hit the side of the ship. We had business that did more than $30 billion annualized in bookings. And then all of a sudden, in eight weeks, we lost 80% of the business which is basically like being in a giant Mack truck going 80 miles an hour and slamming on the brakes. Nothing good happens when that happens. And people were predicting very terrible things like the company wouldn't survive. And I had to stare into the abyss. And thankfully, I've never had a near-death experience, though the way it's described to me is when the, your life, you, know, you have a near-death experience, your life flashes before your eyes. Well, our business flashed before our eyes. And when the business flashed before my eyes, we had clarity. And I said, if we could only save half the company, which half would it be? People were rooting for me. We want you to make it. And I asked myself, well, why do you want us to make it? Like, what's, why are we here? And it, I had this moment of clarity where I realized that we had spent 10 years growing, becoming really successful. But when you grow and you also raise $3 billion and you, you, know, you have abundance of options, you can tend to lose a little bit of focus. And it became very clear to me that like we needed to get back to our roots, get back to the like, original idea of Airbnb, the idea of bringing people together. And I realized that in the middle of the pandemic, what was happening? People were isolated. People were sheltering in place. It was an incredibly lonely time. In fact, this is probably still or was one of the loneliest periods in human history. And it became really clear to me that like we have a purpose in this world that it's not just to make money and it's not just to fill people's homes. The deeper purpose is that, you know, we can help this problem of isolation and loneliness by bringing people together, by helping them experience other people and cultures all over the world. And that became this organizing idea that I think one day at a time we use to rebuild the company back from what felt like the ashes, you know, the smoldering embers of the home. And all of a sudden we rebuilt Airbnb stronger than before. And of course, then went public and all like obviously worked out. But at the same time, I had a personal reevaluation. And my personal reevaluation was that you tend to yearn for things when they're gone. You tend to appreciate something when it's taken away from you. And what was taken away from me was what was taken away from many of us human connection, our friends, our family. And I said to myself that when this thing is all over, I'm not going to take for granted the relationships I have in my life. And I, I guess I would say billions of dollars later, there are the things you value most in life are things you probably can't buy. And there's something about the pandemic that in some ways was a great equalizer, at least emotionally for all of us. Many of us, I will live alone. It was the loneliest I've ever been in my life, you know, just completely isolated from human contact. And that yearning for a connection, that being together with people I love and care about, it just became abundantly clear that that's, that's, that's what it's all about. Could you f see yourself um, 
you know, taking time off, uh, maybe getting married, uh, raising a family. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, now, yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, that was, that was all part of it. Yeah. You know, I'm 39 years old and, you know, I kind of lived this dual life, right? Like my professional life and my personal life and Airbnb is a pretty big company. We have 900 million guest arrivals just to give you a sense of it. Um, you know, the business, we've handled more than $110 billion to the platform. So in a professionally, you know, as I said, I'm like 39 going on 49 or 59. My professional life got accelerated because of Airbnb. It's like I got a ticket on a rocket ship and I had to just hold on. At the same time, because Airbnb was so encompassing, you know, some of my personal life may have been a little bit on hold, you know, and that's the bargain that I made. But it's also something I said I wasn't going to do forever. So, yeah, I absolutely wanted, number one, like I said to myself, the first thing I'm going to do is get physically, like, healthy again. The second thing I'm going to do is reestablish friendships and connections. And, yes, I would love to absolutely have a family, have people to share this incredible life with. So, you know, and those are some of the, 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 the re reflections that I had over this period of time. They were all around this idea of connection, you know. They're, 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 they're all this theme of, like, we're not really alone, and I think this aloneness that we sometimes feel is an illusion, but it's real. You know, I, I think I, one of the stats I heard was that people under the age of 22 are more lonely than senior citizens for the first time since they started taking the surveys. Um, and so I think that loneliness is not something limited to our grandparents when their friends start dying. I think it's unfortunately a very common condition um, in, in life today, but I also don't think it has to be that way. You know, we're built to connect and that's something that I want in my life. And so it's, that's kind of probably if there's a larger wake up call that I had, that might've been it. Well, why do you think folks under 22, I could have a guess, but why do you think folks under 22 are more lonely than people would expect? Yeah. I mean, obviously, um, all sorts of theories, but, um, I remember before the pandemic, I read an op-ed, and the op-ed was called The Decade of Disconnection, and it was talking about the 2010s. The 2010s were an era where social media rose. We got more digitally connected than ever before, but I think the digital connections started replacing physical connections in physical community. And I think that what we've learned is that though digital connections are good, I mean, I run a tech company, it's a website, uh, they are not fully nourishing. And you still need physical connection. You know, most, a lot of people under 22 don't have anyone to confide in. You know, you need close friends, people to confide in, community. You know, no one ever changed someone else's mind in the YouTube comment section. All your Instagram <laughs> followers will probably not have anything to say of your eulogy. So I think it's not that these platforms aren't important or the connections that aren't important. They're just not your whole life and they can't be. And so... I think that one of the great challenges of our time, in fact, I will, I will say this, you know, global warming is a huge challenge. I think there's a greater challenge of global warming, which is a larger challenge of disconnection. I think that global warming is, for example, a, it's basically disconnection between humans and the planet, right? And there's like, and then the consequence are these, um, are, are, are other pernicious effects. But I think there's more fundamental issues that we have to address, which are, you know, just, People's like a sense, people having a sense of community. And when there isn't a sense of community and connection, what happens? People feel isolated. They feel lonely. Depression goes up. Anxiety goes up. The amount of people that are depressed or anxious. Um, hate increases. People stop having empathy for one another. We get diced and sliced into different tribes. We start to think of the other as the other. We get inward. We get distrustful. Discrimination rises. So there's a lot of negative effects. On the other hand, there are very few things that connection can't heal. And I always thought to myself, the best way to change someone's mind about another person is to have them walk in each other's shoes. But that requires not just talking on the internet. It requires people to be physically together. And I'm hoping that like young people really do find a way to like continue to have friends, connections, and community. It's one of the great challenges of our time, but it is also the source of a lot of solutions as well. I mean, what are we gonna solve if not together? And we live in a world now where what do these words have in common? Global warming, global nuclear armament, you know, um, the global pandemic, all the words start with global, right? So many of the challenges today, though, we like to think of ourselves as living in like kind of little tribes, you know, a lot of the challenges 
do not know boundaries of communities that are just global in nature. So this to me is kind of one of the big challenges that I'm focused on. Yeah, you know, I love it. Have you met Vivek Murthy yet, who's the Surgeon General? He used to work with me. I hired him last year. I love him. Yeah, yeah. So, so as you know, he was Surgeon General under President Obama. He obviously last year was not Surgeon General. And I actually hired him as a consultant. Um, originally, the reason I hired him was because, you know, the pandemic occurred and people were nervous about staying in hotels and homes. Are they clean? And so we hired Vivek Murthy to establish a, you know, new enhanced cleaning protocol to make sure the homes were clean and safe. But something more important happened. He told me about a book he wrote. And he said that when he was Surgeon General, he was looking at, I'll, I'll kind of you know, the version of the story I'll tell, you know, he could tell it better, but he said he was looking at what issue should be a signature issue. And I think he remembers saying like maybe opioid addiction would be the issue, or maybe it would be obesity. And so he did a nationwide uh, tour, to listening tour, and he realized that addiction, obesity, um, you know, you know, like depression, suicide, uh, there was a dark pernicious thread running through all of these ailments. And that wasn't, that was the uh, dark thread of loneliness that a lot of these people, the reason they were doing things, they were finally disconnected. And the challenge of loneliness is most of us don't think we're lonely. We think of it as something someone else does. And so he wrote a book called Together, you know, which was all about the idea of community and connection. And he basically showed that if you're lonely, it's as damaging to your health as smoking a pack, a day, a pack of cigarettes every single day. And so I started working with him, not just on cleaning, but on this idea of connection and bringing people together, which is really, again, the idea of Airbnb, whether you're meeting a host in another country or you're traveling with your friends and having a meaningful experience somewhere, you know, you know, people don't travel to sleep in a home. They travel to have an experience with someone else. That's kind of why they're doing it. You know, I, I love I love that you guys connected. As I heard you talk about it, uh, I immediately went there because uh, I, I love him a lot. Yeah. He's, he's a, oh, he's awesome. Yeah, yeah, a good guy. Who else are some of the interesting thinkers that you've come across? Because as I hear you talk, I think you're an interesting amalgamation of a number of things. One is I assume there aren't that many ice hockey players who do design, right? Like I feel, there aren't that many of those guys. <laughs> and then two, I'm thinking about your opportunity to see the world every day and that you actually, you know, very naturally will talk to people in Kosovo and, you know, uh, Namibia and other places when you think about three or four of the more interesting thinkers you've come across over the last year, two, or ten, who's on that list for you? Like, who have you actually gotten something good from, whether it's on a heavy topic or a light topic or a obvious topic or historical topic? Who's in your kind of thinker cabinet? Oh, wow. Um, I'll just – I'll mention, like, a couple people. Um, and, um, yeah, Dr. Vic Murthy would be a great one. Um one person, so I'm a designer by training. Um, I went to the Rhode Island School of Design and I was, my original craft was industrial design, designing physical products. A year ago, I actually brought on the, our team, um, uh, Jonathan Ive, who was um, formerly at Apple. He now has a consulting firm, Love From, and you know, we're one of the clients, but he was a really helpful uh, mentor and advisor throughout the pandemic because he was with Steve Jobs and they had a lot of kind of near-death experiences. And he's really helped me think about the power of design to really, I think, change the world. And it's pretty unique because I'm a designer of a pretty large public company. And I started asking myself, what are the Fortune 500 companies? What, what are the Fortune 500 companies that have people who went to design school running a large company? It turns out there's not a lot of people on that list. Um, you know, I, I would say, um, you know, our host, I mean, I know this is like a, a, a persona, but we have 4 million hosts in the Airbnb um, community. 55% of them are women. 20% of our hosts are school teachers and healthcare workers. And when the pandemic occurred, we started doing listening tours. And we did listening sessions with more than 4,000 hosts. I obviously wasn't in all of those sessions. But I learned so much about the world through our host. And you're right. Our hosts came from all continents in the world um, in 220 countries and regions every country in the world, but North Korea and South Sudan and Crimea. So basically like every country in the world. And I've learned so much about them. And I think that our hosts are really a cross-section of society. Um, you know, and, and there's, I've, I've been afforded the opportunity to talk to numerous other leaders. You know, 
I have a close relationship with the former President Obama, um, and we talk a lot about the responsibility of business in the 21st century. Um, but I've also had the good fortune of knowing Warren Buffett really well, who's probably the most important investor, uh, you know, in the, of the last few generations. So I, I try to, I mean, my general advice is I'm pretty shameless. I think that like, I think like when I was a kid, I used to be afraid to ask people for advice because one, I was afraid they would say no and reject me. And two, I was afraid I would seem stupid and wouldn't know anything. And what I learned is that if as a young person, you can be shameless, maybe you can't talk to some of the people I talked to, but you can talk to somebody two or three years ahead of you, then, you know, you'll, you'll learn so much more. It's like a fast track to learning. And it just takes, I think, a little bit of nerve. You know, I kind of think of it as being a little bit shameless. If you want to learn as much as you can about a subject, the most efficient thing to do isn't to read everything about it. It's to go as quickly as possible to what you think the definitive source is. And sometimes they're people. Sometimes they might be people in your life and you go right to them. And, and what I found is that most people are willing to give you advice because it kind of makes them feel good. It, it kind of is a giant ego stroke, right? And it feels good when people want your advice. And so rejection is pretty unusual in the advice category. People are pretty usually willing to help. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Today more than ever, we're all looking for ways to save, especially on medical bills. But where do you start? Unless you're a medical bill expert, finding savings can seem impossible. And who has the time? HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance and reviews your medical claims as they come in from your healthcare providers. Then HealthLock's technology flags and alerts you to any errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and frauds to help you and your family save. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from selected past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save more than $130 million. Saving on medical bills starts with knowing where to look, and HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden medical bill errors. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's HealthLock.com.
What's the most interesting thing you've learned from Warren Buffett? One thing that, um, you know, one time, uh, maybe 10 years ago, um, I first met him and um, I, 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 I had the good fortune of going to this like conference and I'm sitting at like a, like a, ta- a picnic table with him and um, Jeff Bezos. And I, I like was just getting involved in tech. So I was like very starstruck and kind of nervous. But um, Warren said, yeah, join us for like this lunch. And I asked, I asked Jeff Bezos because Bezos said that Warren Buffett was like his mentor or a mentor of his. And I asked him, I said, what's the best advice Warren Buffett ever gave you? So I'll tell you that's, I'll give you that advice. And Jeff Bezos said a story. He said, Warren, one day I called him up and I said, you're one of the wealthiest guys in the world and your investment thesis is so simple. Why doesn't anyone copy you? And Warren Buffett's answer is because no one wants to get rich slow. And I think that theory, no one wants to get rich slow. Here's somebody who, you know, had he not given away a huge amount of wealth, he'd be worth, you know, he's already worth like what, $100 billion. And he think he gave away a huge percentage already. And the point is that he was pretty rich when he was 40, but almost all of his wealth came in the last handful years of his life. And so there's this old kind of cliche, we overestimate we can do in a year, underestimate we can do in 10. You've probably heard that. There's another story somebody once told me. It was the story of the invention of chess. Uh, Tom Friedman told you a story that the, this guy invents chess. This is like a thousand years ago. He goes to the local king and he says, I invented this game. And the king says, how can I like, you know, how can I repay you? He says, give me enough rice to feed my family. And the, and, and, and the king says, well, how much rice is that? And he says, why don't you do this? Take a single grain of rice, put it on the first square of the chessboard. Then take the two grains of rice, put on the second square. Then four grains of rice on the third, then eight, 16, so double it, 64 times. The king goes, surely I'll grant you your wish. Not realizing that he had basically agreed to giving him one to the power of 64, which is, I think, something like four or eight septillion grains of rice. So, like, in other words, the reason I bring this story up is compounding growth. All the gains are in the second half of the chessboard, right? So, like, gains are slow. They're slow. They're slow. But then they, they're massive. And so one of the big lessons in life is just sticking to something. You know, when we started Airbnb, you know, no one wanted to invest in this business. And I felt like a failure, like for so many days, we'd wake up and it was small. It wasn't growing. It wasn't growing. And a sane person probably would have quit, but we kept going. We kept going. We kept going through obscurity, through rejection. We tried to raise $150,000 and, you know, raise, sell for 10% of the company for $150,000. We couldn't raise money, but over time it started growing and it went kind of like from this to this. And so I think the big lesson there is, again, you can overestimate what you can do a short period of time, but if you stick with something, then all the gains are in the outside years and you've got to think really, really long-term. And so that was the lesson to me. Well, why do you think you didn't give up? I don't think I give, this is the story I tell because when we start, well, I'll, I'll do a quick 20 second on the story of Airbnb. I wasn't intending to start Airbnb with my friend. It was kind of by accident. I uh, had just moved to San Francisco and I moved in with my roommate from college, Joe. We're two designers. I'm totally broke. I, well, I had $1,000 in the bank. So, you know, I had $1,000 savings. I don't know if that's broke, but not wealthy, $1,000 in the bank. And then Joe tells me um, my rent check is due and it's $1,150. So I have a basic math problem. And so it turns out that weekend that I just moved to San Francisco, an international design conference was coming to San Francisco and all the hotels in San Francisco were sold out. And that's when we had an idea. We said, well, what if we just turned our house into a bed and breakfast for the design conference? Unfortunately, I didn't have any beds, but Joe had three air beds. We pulled the air beds out of the closet and we inflated them and we called it airbedandbreakfast.com. And we ended up hosting three people that weekend, a 35-year-old one from Boston, a 30-year-old from India, a 45-year-old father five from Utah. And we made enough money to pay our rent. But more importantly, something else happened. We actually had three people live with us for a week. And when people live with you for that period of time, you know, something magical happens, right? Like you become friends, you know, a, a multi-year relationship can get condensed into a short period of time. And the reason I tell you that story 
is because years later, after Airbnb finally did work, people asked me, why didn't you give up? And the answer I've always given is I said that if people could experience what I experienced that first weekend, then I knew that this would be an idea that would spread around the world. I had this deeply personal experience, my roommate and I, that we got to make money and get paid to meet really cool people. And if more people could experience this, this would be an idea that would spread. So I think so much of life is conviction. Like so much of what I see in successful people are people believe something. They believe it with every bone in their body. They have this sheer will and conviction and passion. And the passion that it takes to start a company is so immense because what you're doing is typically you're going against convention. The first person I told the idea of Airbnb about, he said, Brian, I said, yes. He said, I hope that's not the only idea you're working on. <laughs> and the reason I, the reason I tell you that, that was the first person I told to. <laughs> that's outstanding. And so now, yeah, now when people tell me, oh my God, I'm, I have an idea. I'm afraid people will steal my idea. I tell them what somebody told me. Don't worry about people stealing your idea. If it's any good, everyone will dismiss it. And the point is that you got to have passion. You got to have love and you got to have passion that's almost irrational. Not to say all irrational people are successful, but most all successful entrepreneurs have a little bit of that spark. Well, so, so why do you think you were successful? And, and you know, they used to have those books, What They Don't Teach You at Harvard Business School. Yeah. Um, so, so assume that my last name is now Chesky. I'm Carlos Chesky. I'm your little brother. Uh, I don't look so little, but I'm your little brother. And, and so you're giving me the straight skinny. You're not telling me the stuff that you tell everybody else in a yeah. big auditorium, but like, I'm your little brother. You care about me. You're giving me the real, real. So like, why are you like, like, dude, why the hell did this work? Why did it become such a big thing? What would you tell me if I'm Carlos Chesky? Well, Carlos Chesky, let me tell you, um, <laughs> I think it's a couple things. Number one, I think that, you know, a lot of people are, um, a lot of people are paralyzed by having a good idea. Number one, our original idea was to inflate through air mattresses for a conference. I'm sure everyone watching has an idea about as good as inflating air, three air mattresses. So you don't need to have the big idea. I would say start by solving your own problem. I would say you have to be incredibly resourceful, unstoppable, resilient. And I, what I would say to you is what they don't teach you in Harvard Business School is that almost all entrepreneurs that were successful knew almost nothing when they started. What did I know when I started Airbnb? I was 25 turning 26. I don't think you would have hired me to be your intern. <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure you would have. I mean, we could have run the experiment, but... The point is that so many successful people, they started out and you wouldn't even hire them to be your intern. But what they knew, what they had passion, they had a spark, resourcefulness, and maybe the most important trait is they, they, they were really good learners. You know, they learned how to learn. You know, no one's ever going to know everything they need to start this company. It's kind of like somebody once said, it's jumping off a cliff and assembling the airplane on the way down, but you have no manual. So... It's basically, you know, can you learn really quickly? And the question is, well, then how do you learn? Well, how you learn is you're curious. You're deeply curious and you seek out people. You're bold. You've just got this insatiable appetite. I think that's the thing about being an entrepreneur. I can't tell you what, what, it, what it takes to be a good musician or athlete, but I can tell you to be an entrepreneur, you know, you do have to have skills. You do have to be intelligent. You have to be creative. But the thing about being an entrepreneur is probably the most defining characteristic is the mindset and the spirit. And I think the good news is people like that come from everywhere. They come from every country, every economic background, and it doesn't matter what your parents did, and it doesn't matter where you went to school. And in fact, many of them didn't even go to school. Do, have you started Airbnb Ventures yet? <laughs> um, no. Uh, you, you have to. We, um, you have to. Yeah, you, I mean, we, you have to. Yeah, Pe you think people so? need someone who's talking like you and who believes like you, who genuinely believes it, not bullshit believes it, but genuinely believes it and is genuinely open to hiring the person they wouldn't hire as their intern and backing them, and, and but who's going to be straight on it, that would be a game changer. You might unleash a different group of entrepreneurs and who otherwise would get a shot. I think it's awesome. And I'll just say, you know, there's a lot of discussion around how to solve 
inequality and inequity in the world. I don't presume to know all the answers, but I do think entrepreneurship is a wonderful equalizer. If we can, you know, one of the great honors I had in my life was in 2016, when President Obama was still in office, I was a kind of quasi honorary ambassador. They had this program called, called Global Entrepreneurship Summit, GES, where a handful of entrepreneurs on behalf of the White House and the Secretary of Commerce traveled around the world. And I got to go to Kenya with President Obama. I went to Havana, Cuba, um, Nairobi, Kenya. And um, I um, and I got to speak to people on, that were considering being entrepreneurs. And I think that the great thing about entrepreneurs is it's a way to like lift yourself potentially out of your economic circumstance. And it's a way to help lift other people out of their economic circumstances. So there's something really wonderful about it. And one of the things we're noticing is, you know, great entrepreneurs don't just come from the United States. You know, there's a huge entrepreneurial movement in Latin America, in Africa, all over the world. So it's a pretty awesome moment right now. And I think this is what a time to be alive. I mean, seriously, what a time to start a company. You don't need really any money to start. It's even cheaper today than it was 13 years ago. And I think that the world is in more need of ideas than they ever have before. I think it's great to bring skills. Like if you're an engineer and you can, you have your software development background, that's helpful. Um, I was a designer, so I brought skills to the party. But again, I think the most important thing is the mindset. Your boy Ron Conway years ago told me when Twitter was actually doing super well, I told him which I asked him which of his investments are you most excited about. He obviously leaned into your boy Zuckerberg a little bit. But he said, I actually am most excited about Airbnb. And I said, why? And he says, I think the opportunity is as big as as many superstar founders as you have. And he said, those guys have three, whereas most companies I have have one or two. Was he right? And, and, and was there some special chemistry in the founders? Or is that a projection? And while that was nice to have, it wasn't as definitive in you guys breaking through and breaking out. No, it was absolutely. I mean... I was lucky. I was very lucky. And when I say I was lucky, I think people assume I was lucky that my friend and I had this idea. Well, I mean, if we didn't have this idea, we'd had another idea. And maybe it wouldn't have been as big, but we would have done fine. Um, I was lucky that I found two co-founders, two partners, and we could trust each other intrinsically. We complemented each other's skills. And I think the answer to your question is it absolutely was critical. I think, you know, there's really no such thing as self-made, you know, like they're all self-made is relative, you know, but no one builds a company like us on their own. You know, you do it because of the help of so many people who were there for you each step of the way. In my case, my co-founders, Ron, many other people. And, you know, we're only that somebody once said, you're the average of the people you surround yourself with. You're as good as the people you surround yourself with. And so, again, here, herein lies connection, right? Most of us can't build things on our own. And no one can build something big on their own. You can build something small on your own, maybe. And so I, I do think that so much of life is who you do life with. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. This is it. Your moment. 
This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you have health insurance, it's easy to think, I'm covered, no worries, not so fast. Remember, your out-of-pocket costs are not covered by insurance. That can be a lot of money for your family. But how do you know you're not being overbilled? It's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. Unless you're a billing expert, how do you know your medical bills are accurate? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance. When your medical claims come in, HealthLock Technology reviews the claims for errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden errors so you pay only what you owe. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. Bottom line, insurance alone isn't enough. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. Talk to me a little bit about you growing up. If I had met you at 14, 15, 16, who would I have met? Quiet kid, loud kid, uh, like who would I have met? Give me, give me, uh, transport me back. You would have met somebody pretty lost, I'll be honest. I was um, in high school. I was, um, you know, in, uh, so I'm from upstate New York. Um, uh, my parents are social workers. So I didn't, had no idea what I wanted to be growing up. I never thought about being an entrepreneur. The only entrepreneur I knew was Bob from Bob's Pizza. So didn't really think I wanted a pizza shop. So it didn't really occur to me that being an entrepreneur was an available option in my life. I was really into sports and athletics, but um, so I went to this like private school. But what I was really passionate about was art and design. But at that age, I probably was like a lot of 14, 15 year olds. I had a passion, but never really thought I could get paid to pursue that passion. And, you know, I had a, really, you know, you know, kind of challenging adolescence. So I probably had a lot of kids where like, maybe I was searching for my identity. Who was I? What did I want? So if you had met me back then, you probably would have thought of me as, you know, maybe kind of shy, at least initially, super curious, creative, not really sure what I wanted out of life, wandering in the wilderness, looking for something. And, um, and then my life changed when I was 16. I transferred to a public high school and I had a teacher um, in my junior year of high school. Her name was Miss Williams and she was an art teacher. And she told me uh, she thought I could be like um, a great artist and designer. And I never really thought of that as an option. I mean, I joked that my mom used to tell me I chose a job for the love and made no money. You should choose a job that pays you a lot of money. And so I thought, well, artist doesn't sound like a job that will pay you a lot of money. Um, so, but then Miss Williams really believed in me and she really saw my talent and I ended up getting a, um, I had some great people believe in me and I ended up getting a scholarship, one of the few in the country to go to the Rhode Island school of design, which is a design school, still never thought I would run a tech company, right? Like how would you possibly ever imagine? I thought I'd be a designer, but you know, each step of the way, every one of those life experiences, I could never have seen it looking backwards, but every one of them, um, really helped lead to where I got to, you know? And it was all this like kind of curious journey of just having faith that one thing would lead to the other and all of my cumulative life experiences would all come back to me. Brian, play sliding doors for me a little bit. If that weekend doesn't happen, if your boy Joe's not looking for 1150 from you and you only have a thousand in, um, uh, play sliding doors for me 
like where would we be talking to each other right now? It's very possible that you would have never interviewed me. You would have never met me. And I just, you know, I'd be another viewer watching your show. I don't know if, you know, uh, the reason uh, I probably would have started at a company. It very possibly would have been reasonably successful because I'm so, um, you know, we did have talent. We were very hardworking. We're really creative. We had a big imagination, abundance of energy and optimism. But I also say that if I could have lived a thousand lives, I don't know if I could do this even one more time. You know, so it's it's so many things have to like all work together to have the kind of success we had at the scale we've had. But I'm pretty sure if I had to do it a thousand more times, I could probably do something interesting a thousand more times. Probably I'd either be a designer or more likely be an entrepreneur, um, you know, but I think Airbnb was like kind of we hit lightning in a bottle at the right time. You know, like it was a recession in 2008, social media and mobile adoption were kind of, there was like a confluence of events and we had this, the right idea at the right time. And then of course we stuck with it and very, very fortunate. Um, what did you learn from President Obama? What's the most interesting thing you've learned from President Obama? I think just being intentional, you know, about who you want to be and what your legacy is. He used to say to me, institutionalize your intentions. So even as a public company, you can minimize what conflicts with your vision. And I really left an impression on me. It left an impression in that, you know, I don't have to just follow momentum. You know, I can really be thoughtful about the kind of life I want to live and the kind of legacy I want to have and really be thoughtful about the choices I make and the impact I'm going to have on people. There's just a level of rigor and thought. And, it, and, it, and I think one of the reasons I bring this up is because I think, you know, I'm 39, I'm relatively young, at least for the size company we are. And I think there's a new generation of people that have a kind of, um, you know, a some new ideas about how to run businesses. And, you know, I think that the classic model of capitalism is you're a, you've got to serve a stakeholder and that stakeholder is shareholders. And I think that is a necessary but insufficient vision of what capitalism should be. And the reason I say that is, I mean, you have a pretty young audience, you know, people, a lot of your viewers are under 35, under 30. You know, the younger the person is, the more they care about the values of the company from the, uh, for whom the products they purchase from. And I think this is a trend that's not going to reverse. And so I think the best thing for shareholders is that society wants you to exist is, is rooting for you. And people, it's all about trust. People have to believe they can trust you to do the right thing. And if you're running a really large organization, you as a leader can't make all 10,000 decisions get made every day. There's thousands of people making those decisions. So you have to, you know, you know, you have to create a culture and really, really clear principles about who you are, what you stand for. Imagine like, you know, you have to trust thousands of people in rooms you're not in to make the decisions you wish they would make every single time. That requires a really clear sense of purpose and a really clear mission and people having a sense of pride. And, you know, in, in feeling like, you know, we're not just going to make business decisions. We're also going to make principal decisions. And I would argue that that's not only the right thing to do, but it's probably the best thing for shareholders. If you want to make a lot of money in the future, it's probably also good to find alignment with people rooting for you because it's going to be really hard to be super successful in the next 10, 20 years against the will of society. People have a lot more power than they ever did have before. And so that would be like a big takeaway for me. I think that, you know, it's all about leadership is about responsibility and it's about, and you never feel your responsibility more than in a crisis. You know, it was nothing like the last 12 months when I had employees worried about their jobs, millions of hosts worried about keeping their homes, you know, millions of guests wondering if they're going to get refunds. Suddenly responsibility, it's like the ultimate growing up experience. And that's what leadership's all about. So I think it is. You know, th th this notion that you brought up about people rooting for you, I think that's a really interesting notion. I think that's almost a Harvard Business Review 
article. That's a different kind of company, and few companies get into that space and and earn that space. And I think that's a really that's a really interesting concept to start teaching and to actually value that. What is the value of people rooting for you? Not just using your services, not just aware of you, but affirmatively rooting for you. I think that's really interesting as a, uh, as a, as a larger concept in whatever the new society is. Brian, I want to wrap up a little bit and talk about last summer. Um, you know, we had probably the most six significant racial conversation in the country and in the world we probably have had in a half century. What, if anything, did you take away from that? And I'm not looking for any particular answer. Now I'm just curious because I'm talking to an interesting person who has seen the world and spent time in different places. Did you take away anything in particular from that? Are you looking forward and seeing anything from there? Where, where, where did it leave you, uh, given that it was obviously a, a national and international conversation? Well, I'll bring it. I mean, it, I learned and I took away so much. I'll say two things. The first thing I'll say is I think it was, you know, obviously about time that we had a conversation of that scale. And I think that it's pretty clear more than one year later that those conversations have probably only begun and that they need to continue and that conversations can't just be flashpoints because change doesn't just happen in a moment. I think change happens in a sustained way. And so these are conversations where it's important that we have flashpoints, but it's important that there is a sustained momentum after the flashpoint. If you take, go back to Warren Buffett's advice that like, like you know, Albert Einstein once said, one of the most powerful forces in the universe is compound growth. If you want to have change, you need compound growth of the change. It must accumulate beyond a week or two of protests. We have to sustain the energy when the cameras are turned off. That's the first thing I'd say. So that would be one takeaway I had. I'm not sure that's super insightful, except to say, I didn't, I'm, sure, I'm not sure I had anything to add in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. But I will say that um, I think as leaders, it's incumbent on us not just to like focus our attention in a crisis and move on. We have to have this quiet momentum. And in our case, you know, we, for, I'll give you one example, just so I can put my mind where his mouth is a little bit. We had major discrimination platform pla problems on the platform. We still do actually in 2000, I think it was 16 or maybe it was 2017. There was a hashtag on Twitter and the hashtag was Airbnb while black. And it wasn't a good hashtag. It was basically describing the disparate impact of um, people of color on Airbnb who were experiencing racism and systemic bias. And so, you know, we realized like we had to address this, but addressing it wasn't doing something for three weeks and moving on. So we've been working on this for four or five years. And last year we worked with Color of Change and uh, a number of other groups to do a first of its kind project called Project Lighthouse, where our goal is to measure systemic bias on the platform. And that's a really hard problem to solve. How do you measure racism on a platform or bias on a platform? It's really hard. First of all, you have to understand what people's perceived race is. It's, you, don't, you don't ask the race, you measure perceived race because racism is based on perception. You have to do that in a way that is in accordance with basic privacy policies. You don't want to violate people's privacy. So we had to work with really important privacy groups. And so we've been working really hard. I had a meeting a couple hours ago about our progress to combat discrimination on our platform. So I think that every one of us has something to do. You know, I, as a CEO of Airbnb, there's not a ton I can do on certain issues, but there's a whole lot I can do to make sure that inside the gates of Airbnb, we're doing what we can to root out discrimination. So that would be the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say is maybe at a larger point. You know, I learned a couple of valuable lessons starting Airbnb. And let me preface this by saying nearly, you know, more than a million people a night live on Airbnb, more than 1 million people a night, some nights 2 million. So imagine for the first time in human history, you have more than a couple million people on some nights living together from different countries in the world. Someone in Japan tonight is living as somebody in Texas, you know, and you're going to have all sorts of cultures never mixed before. And as I've traveled the world, gone to hundreds of cities, met thousands of people, lived in their homes, two unmistakable lessons I've taken away. The first is people are fundamentally good. 
Now, I know that you can read the newspaper and news and convince yourself people aren't good. I think it was Chief Justice Warren that said, I read the sports section, not the front page. The sports section is filled with man's successes. The front page is filled with man's failures. It turns out that despite all that we read in the news, most people are good. And if it wasn't true, Airbnb would be out of business. We would be out of business. We wouldn't be able to run our business if strangers in the end couldn't behave well and trust each other. I'm not saying it works all the time, but it mostly works. And the reason why is for the second principle I've learned, that despite our differences, we are 99% the same. Statistically, we are genetically 99.9% the same, I think. And so I think we spend a lot of time focusing on the 1% or the 0.1% that makes us different. And a lot of those differences should be acknowledged, celebrated, embraced. But we also, at some point, need to recognize our commonality. You know, I go city to city and people think they're so different from one another. And I have many of the same conversations, country to country, continent to continent. The more people you meet, the more open-minded you become. Why is it people without passports are the people with the strongest opinions of people in other countries? Well, because that's just the natural bias. The best way to root out bias is to encourage more people, I think, to walk in each other's shoes. And when that happens, suddenly we realize that we're not so different and the other is not so other. And I think that can be a path to bringing people together, healing and connection. Brian, I want to finish with what I call rapid fire. It's kind of the sports page. Okay. If you could have dinner with anyone dead or alive, and I say this knowing that you've had dinner with many interesting people already, who would you love to have dinner with? <sighs> um, dinner with everyone dead or alive, maybe um, like Leonardo da Vinci. Nice. Uh, your karaoke song. Um, this is embarrassing, but Backstreet Boys, everybody. <laughs> um, if you, it's, it's all about the dancing for me. I got a terrible singing voice. So that 90s boy band, that's where the magic comes out. I love that. If someone was going to play you in a movie, who should play you in the movie? Um, Rick Moranis. Oh, baby. Did not expect that, but that's good. Your favorite movie? Favorite movie? Um, uh, uh, you know, Whiplash, maybe, after the last year I've been through. Okay. All right. Your favorite book or, or, or magazine? Um, oh, I have one on my desk. I just got uh, Van Gogh's Letters. Nice. I'm a big artist. And so that's the one I'll pick. Um, uh, most beautiful place you've ever been to in this world? Oh, geez. Most beautiful place I've ever been to in this world. Maybe, um, you know, Utah around the Grand Canyon. All right. Most stunning Airbnb you've ever seen? I stayed in an Airbnb in Australia that's called the Pole House because it was suspended over a cliff with a steel pole and it was this glass house. It was, and it was overlooking an ocean. Uh, final question, fast forward for me 10 years from now, if you can, where are you and I gonna be? We're gonna get together again in 10 years. Where, where are you gonna be? What are we talking about? What's going on? I hope we're not on Zoom. I hope we're in real life. Um, I hope I'm still doing this. I hope that my principles haven't changed. Um, and I hope I'm still running Airbnb. And I, I hope that we've created a lot more connections in the world. Tough dad, pushover dad. Well, me or my dad? You. Me? Probably tough dad. Tough dad. I think you're going to be a pushover dad. I think your daughter's going to get to you. You're right. Okay, you're probably right. Actually, I'm going to reevaluate that. Yeah, probably pushover dad. You're right. Brian, this was so much fun. I really, I appreciate uh, who you are and what you're doing. That systemic bias thing you're doing, game changer. If other people oh, end up following that example, because talking about it out loud and setting something up that allows us to start to think about it is something lots of folks could do. That'd be, that'd be a real game changer. So thank you for, for doing that. We're working on it. Thank you very much, Carlos. Good to see you today. Yeah, good to see you. Have a, uh, have a really good uh, weekend, uh, and hopefully I'll see you in person at some point. All right, hopefully soon. See ya. Okay, take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Carlos Watson Show podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast.
open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Delve into the visceral world of hip-hop with the Gangster Chronicles, hosted by MC8 and Big Steel. It's every Thursday, a podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, gangster rap. Let's go. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.